this being a, called a young adults retreat, I was reflecting a little bit this morning on my uh, adolescence and if I could dredge up anything of any value uh, to talk about with regard to it. And if I'm, if I'm honest, the, the, the two years really before I uh, had the good fortune to find myself in India when I was 19 and to start practicing Dharma, those two years were um, quite confusing and angst-ridden in the sort of, uh, in the sort of classic teenage model of that. And I don't mean to suggest that I was particularly kind of maladjusted. Is that very loud? Pete, it seems to echo. Okay, yeah, that's better. I had a fairly, um, I had a fairly good kind of a social uh, life and uh, I'm, my relationship with my parents was no more dysfunctional than... Uh, most teenagers' relationships with their parents, and there was a, there was a, I was kind of having a good time in some ways, if you like. But underneath that, there was a growing sense of um, dismay, I would say, and disillusionment, and a sense of a rather that the the avenues that seemed open to me seemed rather hollow and not really worth pursuing. I mentioned this a little bit last night with regard to the, the university form no? and staring at it blankly. No idea of what to write. And so I, I started to travel with this kind of classic year off thing. You know? I remember the careers officer at my school saying that it was a terrible idea if you go and travel for a year you'll never get back into education and I said well if I find if, that, if I find something better to do it doesn't really matter does it if I never get back in. and if I don't find anything better to do then maybe I will so he was shocked and dismayed at the idea that there might be something better to do than education but nevertheless so and after uh, a couple of years of travelling in Europe and then the Middle East, I kept meeting people who had been to India. Who, uh, one person, when I was in Egypt, someone said to me, who'd spent a long time in India, they said, If you go to India, it'll turn your life upside down. And I said, Yes, that's what I want. Life didn't look so interesting the right way up. <laughs> And from the, really for the first, the first teachings I came into contact with, and the first retreat I did in, uh, in North India in 1990, must have been, within the first 20 minutes of the beginning of the retreat, and the first teachings I heard, I thought, oh, this is it. This is something that's worth pursuing, worth engaging with, worth putting forth some passion and energy into. In contrast to so many of the other avenues in terms of career, relationship, family, etc. that were sort of otherwise on offer. But I was also reflecting this afternoon on uh, an experience I had in Egypt prior to going to India. And with a friend, we decided to go up to the top of Mount Sinai in the, in the Sinai Desert, which was where Moses uh, got the Ten Commandments, supposedly. And uh, so it's a holy mountain. And the idea was to go up the mountain and spend the night there. And some other people were going up, and there's a very small kind of church on top of the, of the mountain. And in the morning, I got up early to watch the sunrise, and it was very, very beautiful. And looking down from the mountain, I could see very, very far in every direction in the desert, 
And something in just the being there quietly in the morning, where I felt incredibly small amidst the vastness of the desert stretching out, and beyond the desert, the, the sun and the distance, and the sense of the kind of infinity of life beyond that. And I don't mean small in a, in a kind of, oh, poor little insignificant me type of way. I mean, utterly small. Completely insignificant. In a way that felt very, very freeing. Freeing, because if I'm this minuscule speck of insignificance in, in a vast and limitless universe, why would I take all this stuff of my life quite so seriously. And the great sense of relief in that, something very freeing, that all of this that I habitually engage with as my life and my story and my future and my past and my problems suddenly having a perspective so much vaster than that, in which my little soap opera running around my head, in which I was most of the cast, just didn't seem so gripping anymore. And of course with time it got more gripping again. But in, in that moment, that sense of incredible freedom in feeling insignificant in the face of something much vaster and as we were walking down the mountain the next day one of the people who we, we walked down with as he, as he walked down he found a letter in his pocket from his mother that he hadn't yet opened this was pre-email obviously so uh, letters came to post restante when you went to a post office and found, if you were very lucky, a letter that had got there from wherever he lived. And so as we walked down the mountain, he opened this letter from his mother, who he hadn't seen for maybe six months. And most of the letter consisted of his mother complaining about her washing machine that had broken down and flooded the kitchen. which in my expanded state of the feeling the insignificance of these little personal dramas struck me as deeply hilarious. <laughs> and yet, that's kind of the human condition. <laughs> we live in this vast, limitless, uh, mis deeply mysterious universe and we get incredibly absorbed and contracted around and preoccupied by my little melodrama. Buddha said, this is the path of happiness, leading to the highest happiness, that is peace. So there's, there's something... Uh, touched on something whispered at in this kind of activity we're doing here that offers us the possibility for a radical shift in perspective that can lighten and enlighten our lives of the, lighten it of the baggage we carry around of this rather narrow self-absorbed self-centred view uh, the Dalai Lama once quite famously said my religion is kindness very beautiful in the spirit of this sense of holding things lightly for as a kind of the, probably the world's most eminent Buddhist one might have expected the Dalai Lama to say my religion is the eightfold noble path or the four noble truths or the seven factors of enlightenment or the five faculties of you know these endless Buddha, the Buddha was a compulsive list maker no so the, the Buddhism is, can be divided into uh, if you're not familiar with all these then please don't uh, care, think you've missed out but uh, we can have this rather dogmatic approach 
So uh, a body of teachings, or a religion in this case. In Buddhism it has all these lists. And certainly I don't want to um, suggest that they don't have an enormous amount of depth and validity and are really worth kind of reflecting on and studying in that way. But the Dalai Lama didn't say, my religion is this bunch of lists. He said, my religion is kindness. And I th- that's a very, in- a very interesting statement that of all the things he could have mentioned that are, that are rich in the Buddha's teachings, he emphasized that quality of heart that we might call kindness, love, goodwill, care, depth of connection, whatever words... Uh, might make a connection for us. But did he emphasize that quality of caring for life as being most significant? And in, in the Buddhist tradition, we see that quality of care, kindness, compassion, as the natural outflow, the natural outflow, the natural response of a mind that's not caught up in the personal melodrama. Habitually, our lives are half distracted, half defended from what's going on. But if there's that sense, and just the whisper of it that I was mentioning uh, on the top of Mount Sinai, the feeling that the details, the little petty details of my life aren't so significant. And one can feel very, very included effortlessly within that vast uh, mystery of existence. And in feeling very included, one feels a natural intimacy with oneself, with others, with all of life. And of course, the natural... the the movement of heart within that intimacy naturally, effortlessly, easily is one of love of care of a deep sense of connection and so that's one reason why the Buddha says my religion is kindness and emphasizes that quality but also as well as that kindness as the natural outflow a natural expression of a mind that's not caught up. It's also a very um, important quality that we can cultivate in meditation practice. And a very necessary quality. When we come to, a, to here this weekend, or those of us who've been here before may find similar patterns and retreats, have a lot of emphasis on being aware of, being in touch with. And if we're not careful, that can start to be something rather dry. So there's three aspects, I think, to being aware of which are important to bring out. In the sense of connecting with what's happening, so being with the breathing and staying there as a way to steady the mind, to calm the mind, to focus the mind. The second quality is one of real interest in what's happening. Rather than just, oh yes, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. The sense of to actually be very interested in that, to investigate what is happening here. And the third quality is to care for that. Care for that which is happening. So that the, when, we, when we use a word like awareness, it has that quality of care to it. There's an American teacher, Stephen Levine, who speaks about what he calls merciful awareness. You might resonate with that term, or I often say caring awareness. But that in this sense of being mindful and of attending to life, you really need to be careful that it's not something dry 
but that it has a quality of care to it. Because this mind is, has kind of run wild all of our lives. Like an untrained dog. No? Running and barking and f- careering. You know, you're a young puppy, you know? They can run this way and then run that way and run around and around and around wildly. And then we say, oh, maybe, you know, this mind's going to accompany me all of my life. Maybe it's not such a good idea to let it completely run madly. So then we have uh, some idea training, which we call meditation. Like we would take a puppy to dog training classes. No. This is dog training for the mind. <laughs> <laughs> but how would, what would we do with that puppy? We wouldn't, right, try to tame the puppy, tie it to a stick and make it stay still. Have you, have you tried that with the dog? What would happen? It would, be, it would get very distressed. It, would, it makes these terrible kind of heart-wrenching <laughs> sounds, no? And it barks all day. We have a neighbour who ties her dog sometimes and it barks and barks all day. It gets distressed, it gets hot, it gets tired, it ties itself in knots, no, with the string that it's tied to the stick with. But, sometimes that's the approach we take in meditation. We say, oh, my mind's been running wildly like a dog, now I'm going to train it. And we, t- we try to tie the mind up to the breath. Just like we might tie the dog to the stick. Right, stay here. And what happens? The mind reacts in just the same way as the dog might if tied to the stick. It freaks out. It barks. It, it squirms. It ties itself up in, the, in, its, uh, in its rope. It reacts with all kinds of uh, fantasies, distractions, um, discomfort, boredom, restlessness. All the friends that have come to visit you, no doubt, in your meditation since you've been here. So, that's not a, a skillful way to train a dog, and also not a skillful way to train the, the mind. If we're going to train, I'll stick with the image of the dog a little bit longer, and then I'll drop it, I promise. We need to have care. An animal would respond to kindness. Certainly, a degree of discipline as well. But very important, a sense of warm relationship, of kindness. And in just that same way, that's what our mind needs. So that we take care of what's happening. And often we can be very harsh to ourselves. Generally, the people that come on uh, meditation retreats seem to me to be a pretty nice bunch of people. Thus far, in uh, teaching quite a lot of retreats, I've never heard anyone at the end of a retreat go up to someone else and say, uh, you were rubbish at meditating. You didn't seem at all mindful. You seemed to fidget a lot. I don't know why you bothered coming. I'm glad I've never heard anyone say that. But no, people seem to be warm and uh, kind to each other and they connect with each other. It's very sweet. And yet, people often report saying almost exactly those things to themselves. You're useless at meditating. I'm useless at meditating. I'm not very mindful at all. Why did I bother coming? I'm the worst meditator here. Ow. When we see how, how kind of... It, we, we laugh at the idea of saying that to someone else. But we laugh because it's unthinkable, because it would be so cruel and so harsh. And yet we notice so easily we extend that same kind of harshness to ourselves. And we heap on a lot of pressure and tension 
to to get it right. And that's what I mean by the, the tying the dog to the stick, if you like. That's uh, a big burden to live with. Putting that amount of pressure on ourselves. And it's not a great encouragement for the mind to stay around. We're trying to encourage the mind to be present, to be connected with what's happening. And yet in those moments when we wake up from having been caught up in thinking, naturally enough, because that's what the mind does, it goes off, when we wake up from being caught up, we start to say, oh, you've been gone for 20 minutes. You're a terrible meditator. Disaster. If we would, it's just like if we wake up in the morning. If we were to wake up in the morning, oh, and just kind of open two eyes, and somebody was standing over us saying, You, do you know how long you've been asleep for? <laughs> you know, what kind of encouragement is that to stay awake? We just say, Ooh, and put the covers back over our heads. Yeah. In just the same way. <laughs> If we, if we wake up from having been caught up in thinking and we berate ourselves, well, the mind just thinks, yuck, what an unpleasant place to be in. It goes, it goes off again into some uh, other realm. So those moments of waking up are extremely significant. Extremely significant. We've gone off thinking about this and that and then somehow, miraculously... In the middle of that, life wakes us up. Life is endlessly patient and compassionate with us. We spend our whole life going off here, going off there, thinking about this and that and this and that, and life keeps on saying, hello, and bringing us back. And for your whole life, every now and then, life tries its best. Hello? And then we're gone again. We can learn a lot from life's dedication to being present. There's a sincere wish for us to be present. So really, I I can't emphasize enough the importance of paying attention to the fact, the very fact we say, oh, I was caught up and then I became aware, or I was caught up and then I woke up. It's, It's okay to say, but it's not really the way things are. We're way too lost to wake up but life miraculously wakes us up we find ourselves present again just to be careful just to watch for that tendency to berate ourselves there to complain to judge to be harsh and to see is there the capacity to actually wake up in gladness to appreciate the fact that we've woken up It doesn't matter if 20 minutes have gone by or two minutes have gone by. They've gone by. Gone. And now the condition of the mind is it's woken up out of that. The capacity to be here. So this quality of kindness that um, when the, the Dalai Lama says my religion is kindness, this quality of kindness is something that we really can and really need to bring to the process of paying attention to our life to offer ourselves that care and consideration and to offer to that harsh voice to that judgment that says you're useless at meditating that voice needs our care and concern. The temptation is once we start to see, oh that's true what he says I've been harsh to myself I've got to stop being harsh and start really loving myself and practicing and then when that harsh voice is there oh you're not doing very well, we say oh stop it I'm not going to stop thinking, I mustn't think like that (laughs) then we we first, bad enough to have this one harsh voice then we've got another one being harsh to the harsh. <laughs> huh? Oh dear. <laughs> How 
how complicated we are, human beings. So that that voice needs some care, some attention, some some recognition of its pain. No? How mean spirited! If we were to hear someone that was com- who was forever complaining and moaning and you know, like a what's the character in the Charles Dick- Ebenezer Scrooge? You know, in the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. There's this very unpleasant character and he's very miserly and he's always complaining and he's got kind of long hooked nose and little glasses and he, that kind of classic image of somebody very mean. We think, God, poor guy. To be living out of that mean-spiritedness. And if we really see how, how yucky it is, how painful it is to live out of that tightness, we can't help but feel sorry for someone in that condition and so then that same uh, that same voice of harshness that we recognize in ourselves really to to try and and recognize that and extend some care towards it in its very complaining and sometimes I think it's useful to actually even let it really let it rant as a way to start to see how ridiculous it is to start to see that it just doesn't really say anything about who I am because it's not the problem is not so much that this voice happens that we have a moment of saying to ourselves oh I'm I'm really not getting it or oh I'm not very good or whatever the problem is that we really believe that as being true as saying something about who I am and then we feel ourselves in, uh, in comparison with others who are obviously doing so much better than me here. Look how straight they sit. Look how still they are. And then look at me. Oh. Somebody you mentioned this this morning. Yeah. That sense of uh, how we can get caught up in thinking everybody else is like this. And I'm like that, even though we don't know. We don't know at all what's going on in everyone else's experience. So we look around and think, oh God, they're all doing so well and I'm so useless. Finally, we don't know what else to do. We feel a bit self-conscious to just get up and go. So we just sort of close the eyes again. And the person next to us opens their eyes and thinks, oh, everyone else is so... (laughs) And because I'm sitting at the front, I can see you one after another. <laughs> so sometimes letting that, that voice of harshness actually have its rant until we start to see it as being something quite preposterous. And just to be very wary of the tendency to want it to stop, to push it away, to get rid of it, to think, oh yes, that's judgment and I must stop doing it. Because there we're sowing the seeds of just responding with the same, it's more of the same energy. No? And that's very often, initially what happens, we start to recognise, wow, I've got, there's, this, there's this kind of inner judge, it's often called, or inner critic, that's kind of commentating and judging and complaining about myself all the time. And then when we recognise that's happened, it's so shocking... We think we want to get rid of it, but because the pattern is so strong to act in that way, we start piling that same stuff onto it. No? So that's what I mean when I say being harsh to harshness. So to see, can we, the same care that we might extend to somebody who was miserable, somebody who obviously was suffering under the weight of their own self-doubt, can we extend that same kindness and care to that own voice that we find in ourselves that can be otherwise so crippling? And so this, start, this sense of taking care of that voice without believing that it's who I am starts to kind of pull the rug out from under the feet of taking ourselves so seriously, of being so locked into our melodrama 
who I am and who I should be and etc etc because it's a terrible uh, responsibility to have to carry that around this very strong rigid self view of who I am and and therefore not just who I am but all the places I recognise in me that I don't like and how they should be different sometimes we can come to spiritual practice with the idea that I'm going to kind of um, become a better person and that I'm going to transform or transcend or something all these kind of neuroses and uh, doubts and uh, all the sort of nasty bits of myself into something else where I'll be kind and loving and wise and spiritual and this is a nice image but it's a tall order as well because it's this, this body and mind is kind of fundamentally flawed fundamentally flawed in as much as the mind kind of does what it likes a lot of the time and the body is basically wearing out <laughs> and that's what we choose to identify with and say oh, this is me and I'm trying to constantly improve it I'm trying to constantly improve myself and all while it's wearing out no wonder we struggle trying to improve something that's basically hurtling at an unknown rate towards the grave And so, how do we just to, to look at this the, this uh, the self view we have? No, self view uh, usually in terms of body and mind. You know, if we if we sort of, if we identify very strongly with this is who I am, this body. Now, how do we reconcile that with the fact that it hurts sometimes, with the fact that it's wearing out, with the fact that it might be a, a size or a shape that we, wouldn't, that we don't really want it to be, the fact that it produces all kind of nasty, smelly stuff? Is that who I am? This thing that produces all kinds of nasty, smelly stuff? We might want to check in whether that's really what we feel is useful to identify with. This is who I am. In, in, the, in, the, in the kind of classic Buddhist tradition, particularly in the, the, the Theravada tradition, they go into this whole thing with gusto. They detail in great, uh, in great detail uh, all the unpleasant stuff of the body. And some teachers would really get carried away with this, just and would only refer one or two of the particularly fierce Thai meditation masters from Thailand would uh, would refer to the body constantly as a shit factory. (laughs) (laughs) Just as a gentle reminder not to get too identified with the body. But somehow in the West we have. we sometimes have the opposite problem. No. We too easily have a very, very strongly negatively conditioned view of our body. And because of the, the, the huge emphasis in our culture on kind of youth and beauty and thinness and all that kind of stuff, we, we very easily feel a pressure that we're not, you know, there's so much emphasis on those things that we can easily be thinking we're too much this or too much that. And we get very kind of negative sort of self-view. And so endlessly giving out the view that the body is a shit factory doesn't really help. (laughs) Always. And sometimes it's more, from our point of view, the necessity to try and befriend the body in some way. It doesn't mean to obsess around it or to pamper it and that kind of befriending in a a rather uh, fluffy or possibly even new age uh, use of, of, of the idea but to actually in, learn to befriend in terms of inhabiting the body the way it is 
the way it is. It's like this. To learn to inhabit the body as we actually experience it, as movement, as vibration, rather than our usual way of referencing the body is through our endless ideas about it. I'm this age, I'm this gender, I'm this shape, etc., etc. Because there's a, a huge amount of pressure. huge amount of pressure and particularly when we're young there's a lot of pressure all these ghastly magazines you know that do read uh, uh, obsessing around youth and beauty and all there was a song in the, in the charts in England a, f- a few years ago which I don't know I think it was called the sunscreen song anyway there was one line in there it said don't read beauty magazines they'll only make you feel ugly and I thought that was a good line. <laughs> so there's a lot of um, pressure around identifying with the body, but and equally with the mind. We come to a kind of uh, meditation retreat, and we've got this idea of uh, developing these wonderful qualities and being a better person, if that's what uh, if that's the idea we have. How do we reconcile that? This sense of I, I if I we identified with this mind with all the weird or unpleasant stuff that happens in the mind all the stuff that doesn't really correspond at all with our ideas of ourselves as a basically kind or generous person if this is it if this if this is who i am this mind what about those kind of revenge fantasies that we were talking about this morning if I'm going to identify with the contents of my mind, there are moments when I kind of... Does that mean I'm some kind of uh, <coughs> violent maniac? Some kind of sexual deviant? Some kind of uh, eccentric fool? You know, just dependent on whatever the, the stuff in the mind is at any different moment. So the Buddha... Uh, a strategy for relating to ourselves and this strategy as I say the, the, the basis for it needs to be that movement of kindness of care of the willingness to really allow what's there to be there so when the, this voice of harshness that I mentioned earlier has to be has to be held with care with a sense of genuine acceptance. Often our acceptance is very low level. It's not really acceptance. We call it acceptance, again, because it's a nice spiritual word. But often we say, oh, I'll just have to accept it. There's something I don't really like, but I just have to accept it. What we really mean is, I'll call it acceptance, and if I accept it, in inverted commas, if I accept it, then it'll go away. So we, we have these ideas in meditation, oh, you just have to be with it. So oh, I'll be with it so that it'll go away. And that's not the kind of strategy. That is a strategy, but it's not the kind that the Buddha was referring to. So rather than that kind of uh, acceptance, we say, oh, I've got this, this kind of judgment this harsh voice, I just, have to, I just have to accept it. And we think that by, we'll give it kind of two minutes of acceptance and then it should have gone by then. And if it hasn't, then we can kind of get down on ourselves. If we're really going to talk about acceptance, that has to be a spirit of genuinely not demanding anything of life. Not demanding that the thing we're trying to accept or be in relationship with, behave in any particular way, but really allowing it to be the way it is. Allowing that harshness even to have its voice, to get it off its chest. So against the, against the background of this kindness that has to underpin spiritual practice, 
the Buddha taught the strategy of not, not, uh, non-identification. That means looking at our experience, that which is happening in body and mind, and as a wise strategy, not taking it to be who I am. Not taking it to be me, not taking it to be mine, not taking it to be who I am. And that makes really profound sense. Sometimes the Buddha's teachings of no self, or the Buddha's teachings of not self, actually, which are at the heart, in many ways, of Buddhist teachings, get a very kind of get bad press, or they get misunderstood in some way. Actually, there was only one place, I think, in the texts where the Buddha is asked very directly, is there a self or isn't there a self? And he refuses to answer. We were talking last, uh, this afternoon or this morning about these four types of questions. No? So he said, this is one of those questions to be put aside. But he did teach the, the, what he called the noble strategy of whatever we notice... Not taking it to be who I am. Not taking it to be me or mine. And that makes profound sense. So that when we're looking, as we're doing here over these days, moment by moment, in as close and as careful a way as possible, at the unfoldings of body and mind, not to latch on to them as being I, me or mine but really to try and engage with them very directly. Body as body, thought as thought, emotion as emotion, sounds as sounds. And seeing the great play of that, the great unfolding of all of that stuff happening within us and around us, And to actually regard it, to, we can make a, a practice out of actually when we, whatever it is we're noticing, that sense, not just to repeat mechanically, but actually to, to look upon the pain in the knee, or to look upon the confusion in the mind, or to look upon whatever it is that we, that's standing out in meditation as, this is not me. This is not mine. This is not. This is not who I am. This confusion is not who I am. Be preposterous to think this confusion is who I am. And maybe philosophically we'd never say, "Oh, this confusion is who I am." But experientially, that's what we tend to do. We notice confusion in the mind, and we say, "Oh, I'm confused. Oh, what a terrible state of affairs. I'm so confused, as if that's who I am." Five minutes later. We're not confused anymore. We're hungry. <laughs> say, oh, I'm hungry. Is that who I am? I am hungry. Ten minutes later, we've wolfed down our lunch. Mindfully or unmindfully, I don't know. And then we fall up, oh, I'm so full. Is that who I am? How can who I am be any of these little brief moments? And yet how easily they take on a solidity and a reality for us in the kind of crucible of meditation. It's just, you know, what we're doing here is basically our normal life, walking around, sitting around, eating a bit, resting now and then. But it's like life put under a magnifying glass. So we're looking closely at, at it. So well, we're just sitting around here in the meditation hall, Something gets a grip on the mind, boredom, for example. I say, oh, I'm so bored. And why is, why, why is boredom a problem? It's because we believe that's who I am. And therefore, oh, what a terrible thing to be. I want to be something else. I want to be interested. I want to be happy. I want to be this. I want to be that. And so we're in this, this difficult situation that who I am is bored, and I want to be something else. If we just if we just step back and not not believe 
that that's who I am, we can actually engage with boredom directly. Boredom can be very interesting to investigate. And we'd be really, really well served by investigating boredom. Because otherwise, in most quiet moments of our life, we get bored. And then we go careering off to look for something to fill up that space. Another way in which human beings are so strange. You know? We're often very busy, and when we're busy we say, Oh, what I just need, if only I had some peace and quiet, if only I had some space. I really need some space. I'm really looking forward to the weekend, when I don't have anything to do on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to that retreat. I really need some space. What do we do? As soon as we get some space, what do we do? Oh, what can I do to fill it up? No. We can't bear space. We're always complaining that we need space. We can't bear it when we've got some. We just straight away try to fill it up. So that would be really worth investigating, that feeling of boredom. For example, it's just one example of, of many, but the way basically something arises in the mind, we latch onto it and say, and acts towards it as if this is who I am, and then we get into all kinds of trouble with it. So the Buddha proposes, Buddhist teachings propose, this noble strategy. Noble means fantastic, worthwhile, rich, useful strategy. Of When we notice something that's got a grip on the mind, and there's usually something, to just have enough doubt that before we're willing to believe in the idea that this is who I am actually reflect on that is this really worth identifying with is this going to bring me happiness and genuinely worthy of connecting to and genuinely worthy of caring for no these are these three aspects I mentioned earlier in awareness. Connecting to, being interested in, and taking care of. So that in that way, we meet our life <coughs> as an exploration, as a discovery. And as a process which is rather mysterious rather than who I am. The, significant, the, the significance for me in that moment on top of Mount Sinai was the sense of who I am just wasn't very important at all. And that, as I say, not in, in a small or fearful way, but in a way in which we're in contact with something much, much larger. And when, just in the midst of our own mind states, of boredom in the meditation hall, or of, some, of confusion, or of the moment of real ease and peace and relaxation that might be there, if we're able to let go of the idea of the me bound up in this, then we start to see it as process, as something mysterious, as something unfolding within a vast web of life. And that mystery can deeply inform our lives. So that we both sense and learn to find our rest in that movement and in that mystery. And within the vastness of that, within the mystery of that, the kind of everyday language of who I am and what I'm like and what age I am and all the rest of it, it kind of has its place. It's the way we communicate and there's nothing wrong with that. But that something authentic in us knows that that's just the storyline, just the melodrama.
and that the truth couldn't possibly be contained by anything that I could call I, me or mine. And if our, if our time here is, is spent in the, in the service of that and in the exploration of that, then it'll be time very well spent. So may our, may our practice and our discovery together be in the service of that which is most beneficial, most freeing for ourselves, one another, and for all beings. some time for some further sitting if you like or some quiet moments walking in the outside